All right. Well, today we're going to continue our series called Breaking the Law in Galatians. If you've been with us over the last few weeks, yeah, some of you love it. Some of you probably wish we were done. Either way, we're still going to do it. Um, so I don't know. How many of you have ever had a relationship go south on you? Um, it's generally heartbreaking. And so I, I looked up some of the great heartbreaking, tragic relationships of our time that kind of compare with maybe Romeo and Juliet, these great love affairs. And if these folks can't make it, who among us really has a chance? And so I want to just share with you a few that I found. Um, Drew Barrymore and Tom Green lasted 163 days. That is long. That's, if you do it in like in Hollywood years, that's like a lifetime together, right? Um, Pamela Anderson and Kid Rock made it 122 days. Lisa Marie Presley and Nicolas Cage were 107 days. Cher and Greg Allman, who recently passed, made it nine days. She referenced his drug use and out-of-control lifestyle as a reason to leave him, as if that was a shocker, if you were familiar with the Allman brothers, like you didn't know what you were getting into when you married the guy. Um, and Britney Spears and Jason Alexander made it a whopping 55 hours. Um, you know, these are some of these relationships uh, in our culture that come from maybe a Hollywood lifestyle that you could show. They don't put a lot of devotion and commitment into marriage. And in fact, we could say most of those relationships have kind of made a mockery of marriage. Um, and for us regular folks, when a relationship ends or is struggling, it hurts. It's painful. And that doesn't just have to be a marriage. Um, if you're losing a friendship or you see a friendship struggling, it hurts. Um, it causes us to be introspective many times. Um, it causes pain. We lose sleep. Um, we're confused about why things happen the way they did. Maybe there's anger towards that person or towards ourselves. And as we look at our passage today, we're going to see this kind of come out in Paul's writing a little bit of this struggling relationship, the strain that's been put on him and the people there. And in fact, starting in verse 12, you almost hear this kind of outburst he has um, he, he's confused. He's hurt. The people he was close for, the people he shared the gospel with and shared his life with, he's now seen them pulled away. And you start to feel some of that pain and that hurt that he's feeling of seeing someone he cared deeply for is being led astray. You know, and, and in reality, it really, what it does for us, sometimes it humanizes these people that we sometimes set up on these pedestals that, that aren't realistic or, or we think, well, they weren't people. They, they were completely different than us. And that's just not the case. We see Paul, this kind of like emotional outpouring and this hurt that he feels and this possible loss of relationship. And it comes out in his writing even. Uh, many of us know people who've been close to the Lord or maybe we led to the Lord or we're very walking with him closely and then we see him turn away and, and, and stop following him. And that causes us pain. And Paul's angry, he's confused, he's angry at the people, but he's even incredibly angry. He's angry at these Judaizers who are leading them astray. And if you don't know who the Judaizers were, we've referenced them many times in our series. We'll call them Christian Jews. We don't know for sure. You know, maybe some of them were, some of them weren't. But what they were doing is adding the law and Jewish rules and regulations to Christianity and saying, okay, you believed in Jesus, but you also have to do this. And so Paul's incredibly upset with them. And he continues writing this letter, reinforcing what he said all along, is that salvation is through faith alone in Christ alone. And so he's going to reinforce that again, as we'll see today. And so we're going to start in Galatians 4, verse 8. And it says this, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slave to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? 
You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. And so Paul asks this question, do you really want to be slaves again? See, originally we were slaves to our sinful nature. And we kind of all, we've gone over that many times in this series. If you go back to Romans 5, we're slaves to our sinful nature. We worship things that were not God's. If you notice the usage there, uh, and you'll see it throughout your Bible, little g, big g. Big g, God, Yahweh, self-existent one. Eternal God, I am referenced by Moses. Um, Little g, other gods, influences, idols, things that are distracting us and taking us away from the relationship with the God and a relationship with him. And Paul's telling them, pursuing this morality-based salvation is never going to be good enough. It's never going to lead to salvation that leads to relationship with Christ. You see the pursuit of this morality in their, in their history even. If you look at the history of Israel, the law-based society that they had, what would happen every time they would begin pursuing the law as a, as a means of, in a sense of salvation? They failed. Every time they failed. And they didn't just fail. A lot of times they didn't just like, you know, couldn't uphold the law a little bit. They would completely swing to the opposite end of the pendulum. It wasn't just, oh, we didn't quite live up to the standards of the law. It's like, no, we're over here worshiping idols and joining in completely with the people around us and our culture and totally abandonment of following God. Why? Because a law-based religion is never going to establish a relationship that comes through faith. And we see that enforced in the Old Testament. And so Paul warns these people that are being led astray that a moralistic code of salvation is never going to bring them to following God in their life. It's only going to lead them to following these little g things, these other influences, the distractions, the little g gods of our life that pull us away from the self-existent Yahweh, the eternal God, I am. And so he warns them, this moralistic code is not going to work. I don't know if you've ever known someone who's become a believer and you've seen them come to know Christ and then they turn their back on him, back to these things that were ruining their lives. And maybe you could even say at one time I was this person. And this is kind of what Paul's referencing when he speaks of a return to slavery. You know, you're returning back into these things of bondage that kept you from God. These things weren't making you closer to him. They were keeping you from him. And now you're returning to these things that are pulling you back into slavery. Someone who wants to return to that former life. So when, we, when I talk about a return to slavery, I think it's an important question for you to consider. Have you been freed to start with? As our whole series titles, Breaking the Law, have you been freed from the law? Or another way to say it, have you been freed from the consequences of the law? And that only comes through God's grace by faith in Christ. Have you been freed from that? Paul has a statement that really asks us a very important question that that should lead to some self-examination in our own lives. And and Jesus follows it up in Matthew 7, or actually he established it in Matthew 7. Paul asks it another way here in Galatians 4, 9. And if you notice that in verse 9, he says this, But now that you know God or rather are known by God? That's a big question that should cause us some pause and reflection. Jesus addressed this in Matthew 7. He started talking about the road to heaven is narrow. He speaks about false prophets and true prophets. Then he goes on to describe a true follower of Christ. And here's what Jesus said in Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. Culturally for us, especially in in a church setting, we, we need to make sure that our acknowledgement or our 
relationship with God is more than just a church attendance, but it's a faith-based acknowledgement and knowledge of a relationship with Him. We cannot rest on our laurels and think that's going to be good enough. The one thing that's been reinforced throughout this whole series is good is not good enough. Our ability to follow a moralistic code or follow the law will never be good enough. Um, So does God know you? I think that's an important question we need to ask ourselves. And I'll give you an example. This was an event that broke my youngest daughter's heart um, and left her in tears. And well, everything leaves her in tears. <laughs> but this one in particular did. We went to the AT&T Pro-Am in February and, and we kind of discovered a new family fun event. We had a great time. And one of the things that we were all excited to do is you see like movie stars and football players and athletes, and you, you actually get very close and interact with them, and several of them are, are very friendly. Like they'd come over, and they would high-five the kids. They would take pictures with them. Um, just some, like, I, some of them went out of their way. Like Larry, the cable guy, went out of his way to come spend time with the kids, talk to them. He came and gave them golf balls. He was like very friendly. And some of them were just incredibly friendly and incredibly nice. And then others would kind of just walk by, like Bill Belichick, like you would expect, the coach of the Patriots. He kind of grunted at people as he walked. Oh. Um, and if you know who he is, that fits his, that's who he is. Um, so we, we, got a, we got a place off the 11th hole at Spyglass where, the, where they came off and there's these ropes that keep you from running out on the course. And so as everyone would walk off, our kids would high five them and everything. And one of the people they were most excited to see was Peyton Manning because we know Peyton Manning. Uh, Ryan's been to see us play, uh, see him play games. I took him to uh, the Coliseum and we went and watched the Broncos play the Raiders a few times. So he's seen him play. Well, guess what happens when it's finally Peyton Manning's turn to come off the green and, and see us and we're right there. He doesn't stop. He doesn't high-five us. He goes to the other side of the ropes, doesn't acknowledge him. And my little daughter, Annabelle, comes running back to me, and I'm not making this up. She doesn't hardly know him from the man in the moon. She's just heard us talk about him. She comes running back in tears and goes, Peyton Manny didn't give me a high-five. And her little heart's broken. So um, if you're out there listening somewhere, Peyton Manning, our new favorite quarterbacks are Alex Smith and Aaron Rodgers. (laughs) Both of those guys stopped and high-fived the kids and took pictures with them. So... uh, Anyway, but it wasn't, that he, he, it wasn't that he was trying to be rude. There's people everywhere pulling at him, right, trying to get his attention. Everyone wanted to see him. He was like the star of the show, and we just missed out that time. I don't think he's like this rude guy who's a jerk. But you know what? We knew things about him. My whole family knew who he was. We know the stats about Peyton Manning. We know where he went to college. We know where he's played in the pros. We know the Super Bowls he's won. But what would happen if I climbed under those ropes and said, hey, I, I know you, Peyton Manning? and climbed under the ropes they have. He's going to call security, or probably his own personal security, and I'm going to be kicked out of there, right? He doesn't know me from the man in the moon. And for some of us, we've grown up in a culture that we know about God, but we don't know him as our Savior. And Paul in verse 9, and Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, say this thing in a way that should cause us some pause and reflection on our relationship with the Lord. Of Yeah, do we say we know him? Matthew 7, these people said they know him. But does the Lord know you? Do you have this relationship with him? And that should cause us to reflect on that somewhat. And so Paul returns, though, to his main message of the impossible task of earning our salvation or meriting favor with God based on our own efforts. And he comes back to this idea that uh, the observance of special days. And he's basically saying a return to all of these Jewish traditions and Jewish customs is not going to save you. Your salvation is not established based on the observance of these special days or events or holidays or certain laws or Jewish traditions. 
None of those things are what your salvation is established upon. Our salvation is dependent upon Christ alone. And these people Paul cares so deeply for are being led astray. They're walking away from a faith-based salvation to this works-based system that Paul knows is not going to be good enough. And he's frustrated by it. And so he makes this very harsh statement if we just look at it on its own in verse 11. I wouldn't say it's a final judgment call, but in reading it, it's a harsh statement. He sees this group of people falling into the ways of the Judaizers, and he's concerned. And he says, basically, have I wasted my efforts on you? Were my efforts in vain because you're going to allow yourself to be pulled away? And so as we continue reading, the next thing I noticed in this passage, as we'll pick it up in verse 12, is Paul's self-described role reversal that we'll see here. So if you'll join me in verse 12, I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. You did me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Where then is your blessing of me now? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? In these verses in particular, we start to see Paul's emotional struggle as he's writing this. He's pleading with them. He's concerned that he's become their enemy for telling them the truth. You know, one commentator I read described it this way, said this was Paul's erratic emotional outburst. And in these verses, he does speak of a role reversal, though, of a couple role reversals. And the first one we see he describes is he, Paul encourages the Galatians to become like him. And if we read that just at face value, you could say, well, that's very arrogant, right? If I, uh, if I got up here and said, I want you all to be like me, some of you would say like, well, we knew he was an arrogant jerk all along. Um, it's just time he said it. And, and others would say, okay, why, why is he saying that? And so when we look at, at what Paul follows it up with, he says, for I became like you. Paul at one time would have been one of these Judaizers. He had followed all these laws of Judaism. He would have been like riling up the crowd to do all these things. In fact, we can look back on his life and say, not only would he have been part of it, he was the leader of such a group. So he's saying, I became like you. Now you should become like me. You're kind of sense we're reversing these roles. I used to be the Judaizer who thought we had to follow all these laws and do all these things. And I became like you. Understanding my salvation wasn't based on my Jewish heritage or customs or tradition, but it was based solely on Christ. These people, um, this group of people were so caught up in following Jewish rules and tradition, they would have had nothing on Paul. If you want to read, we're going to go to Philippians 3 and look at this. In a sense, Paul could have said, anything you could do, I could do better, or I did do it better. But yet I acknowledge that wasn't good enough. Let's go to Philippians 3 and see what he says about himself and who he used to be. Philippians 3, 2. Watch out for these dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by His Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. So he's saying, if any of you have reason for confidence in the flesh, I have reasons. And he's about to lay out the things that he was or did do. If someone else thinks they have reasons to be confident in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, he was faultless. 
But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. And underline, highlight this in verse 9. This ties directly into what we've been studying throughout all of Galatians. It says this, And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Again, we see this just cross-compared with Galatians. It's not about our ability to fulfill the law. What does Paul say all that ability to fulfill the law? He counted it as garbage or worthless junk. All these good works don't get it done. Because righteousness does not come from one's ability to follow the law. It comes from Christ and our faith in Him. And this is how Paul became like them. He went from being the Hebrew of Hebrews, the leader of a group of Judaizers persecuting the church, following all the Jewish rules and Jewish traditions and Jewish laws. And Paul says, I became like you because I had to fully rely on my faith in Christ and not my fulfillment of the law for salvation. And so now all of a sudden, though, you flip-flopped and you're becoming like I used to be. You're listening to these Judaizers who are trying to convince you to start doing all these things for salvation. Those things weren't going to cut it. Paul knew it. He'd already been one of those people, and he knew that wasn't good enough. And he tells him to become like he is now, a person who solely relies on Christ Jesus alone and their faith in him. So that was the first really big role reversal we see in that, those few verses. Another role reversal we see is in their treatment towards Paul. It basically says at one point they would have done anything for him. And he says, and now I'm becoming your enemy. I'm once again reminded of something Jesus said in Matthew 10 when he commissioned his disciples to go out. And he told them, basically as a warning, people aren't always going to like you. There's going to be some people that despise you. There's going to be relationships that end. And he tells people, there, there will be people that turn on you. Families will turn on you. And Paul is kind of experiencing this firsthand with the people in Galatia and this, these communities there. The people are beginning to turn on him for preaching the gospel. If we go back, originally it appears he was very well taken care of. He was greeted warmly. It says he even treated him like an angel or like Jesus himself. It says if they, would, if they could have taken out their own eyes and given them to him, they would have. Man, that's some deep affection. Because like, I like you guys in this room, most of you probably, I like. But I wouldn't give an eye for any of you. Like, even if that was possible, I wouldn't do that. And Paul's saying, if it had been possible, you guys would have ripped out your eyes and gave them to me. There's, and, and maybe he's speaking a, a little exaggeratory, but either way, he's trying to drive home the point that there was obviously a deep affection and care for him. And so what is the illness Paul's referring, referring to? Well, you know what? It's not specifically disclosed. And so it makes me wonder if they had HIPAA laws in effect then, but they didn't tell us exactly what it was. And, and people have kind of pieced things together from other verses. And in 2 Corinthians 12, 7, he references a thorn in the flesh. Um, and people have kind of looked uh, through different writings and things. And so these are a few of the leading candidates for what his illness was or thorn in the flesh. Some say it was a chronic eye problem, uh, malaria, migraines, or epilepsy. Those seem to be the leading candidates for what he was struggling with. Um, we, don't, we don't know exactly. But whatever the illness or sickness was, it appears that it altered Paul's plans that he was not originally planning on visiting these people and seeing them on his missions journey. But when he came to, to them and preached the gospel for the first time, they treated him very well. And now, as we said, there's a role reversal. Now he's worried they're becoming his enemies because they're being led astray by the Judaizers. 
And Paul's trying to tell them the truth and say, don't listen to that nonsense. Don't, don't fall prey to that foolishness. Don't become like them. And telling the truth is not always the easy thing to do. Uh, some of us probably make it more difficult than it needs to be. Um, it's not an excuse to be rude with people. I, I know there's famous sayings in our culture of, I'm just saying, you know, I'm just saying, and I'm about to be incredibly rude to you now. And I can say, I'm just saying, and that's supposed to make it okay. Um, you know, but, but there is some biblical instruction for telling people the truth. In Ephesians 4.15, it says we're supposed to speak the truth in love. And sometimes this means very gently coming alongside of people. And other times it could probably mean a verbal kick to the rear end. Um, truth and love doesn't always have to mean tears, hugs, and kumbaya. And it doesn't always have to mean like a rude confrontational approach either. All these situations are different. But Paul, if, if you look at Paul's writing, he's never one to not tell people the truth. He's never one who's backing down and ashamed of it. He finds different ways to say it. And oftentimes it is the kick in the rear end if it's from Paul. He probably wasn't the kumbaya guy. That would have been some other of the disciples. But, you know, telling the truth in love doesn't always ensure the outcome we hope for. But we're encouraged to do it anyway. And the last thing I see here is Paul tell them in verse 17 to 20 is don't fall for another gospel. These pe those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. It is fine to be zealous provided the purpose is good and to be so always, not just when I am with you. My dear children, for who am I again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you? How I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed about you. And Paul is hurt because he's seeing these people he's so close to falling away and listening to the Judaizers as they spread the false gospel. And they're falling for, for the zealousness. And that's kind of the excitement and energy in which they're pursuing them. And they're pursuing them to alienate them from Paul. And more importantly, they're alienating them from Christ. And the word zealous here, the Greek word, it's the word zelu. And this word is used to describe in a relational context a man's pursuit of a woman who was corning a woman. And, and to give you some idea, you know, the initial pursuit, probably for most of us, the initial pursuit of our wives that happened when you were in college or high school, or some of you guys are living now, where you do all these sweet things that maybe some of you keep doing them good for you. Um, some of us fall way short, and 14 years later, we end up eating McDonald's for breakfast on our anniversary. You know, you know, but that initial pursuit, if you can think back to it, if you can't think back to it in your own life, look at some of the high school kids you know. And you'll see that initial pursuit, the emotion, the energy that's there, you know, in that relationship that is just really driven on emotion. And that's the word Paul's using there. They're pursuing you in that context. They're in hot pursuit. And that's the word Paul used to describe the Judaizers there. And I think this is a very important reminder for us that our faith has to be grounded on so much more than emotion. Because if we're led astray by someone who's in hot pursuit of us, we're going to be constantly waffling and constantly going this way and that way. And our faith will be pulled. Our faith has to be based on more than emotion and a good feeling. It cannot be a high school relationship that changes on a monthly basis. And you're in love one week and you hate them the next week and then you're in love with a new person the next week. Our faith is meant to be much more grounded and deeper than that. Because there's people who are going to pull at us and there's going to be more exciting churches. There's going to be, and, and not to say this is the only church that accurately preaches the gospel at all. But there are going to be other churches that, are, that teach false teachings, but they do it in a way that's exciting and energetic. Does that mean we fall for that? 
There's going to be people in your life that have a lot of excitement energy about something. Does that mean we give in to that because they're so excited? No, hopefully our faith is grounded in something much more firm than that. And that's one of the real reasons it's important for you to get involved in a small group or a discipleship group as we go forward, is to make sure your faith is grounded and growing and you're becoming this maturing believer, that you don't allow emotion to sway you. These people here, these new believers, were allowing themselves to be swayed by the emotion, the zealousness, the pursuit, the way a, a man pursues a woman in that initial courtship, and they were allowing themselves to be pulled away from the faith they'd come to. And Paul comes back to this and basically says he's having to go through this initial and effort again, the pains of childbirth again. In a sense, I'm having to start over at step one. I don't know if you know, um, so when Ron teaches, you get wrestling illustrations. When I teach, I either talk about golf or football. Um, you're welcome, by the way. You don't hear about wrestling when I teach up here. Uh, <laughs> but there was a football coach, most of you know, because the Super Bowl trophy is named after him, Vince Lombardi. And every season, he would start it the same way. He would basically give his same speech every year. Rookies and veterans would have to report. And he wouldn't treat the rookies any different than the veterans for this first speech. He would start by saying, gentlemen, this is a football. And he's starting at step one. These people play football their whole lives. They would all know that. And Paul, in a sense, is saying, I'm having to go back to step one with some of you. These things I covered with you. Our salvation is on the basis of faith in Christ alone. That should be step one for a lot of us. We should know that. But yet so many times we find ourselves going away from that. We should not always have to tell ourselves, this is a football. We know it's a football. Salvation is through faith in Christ alone. We should know that. We should be living in that truth and growing and maturing in that truth. But Paul's saying, basically, I'm having to go back to the beginning, the pains of childbirth, and start all over with you because you've allowed yourself to be led astray. Don't allow ourselves to be led astray by this emotion that someone else may present. Get in your Bible. Examine the truth. What does the truth say? Partner with a ministry that's teaching the truth of that. And then we see Paul's desire to, to be with them and share with them personally. And I don't know how many of you have ever struggled to maybe communicate a message via text or on Facebook or something. Um, sometimes we can be like real tough guys if we just use text message or Facebook, right? We say things to someone we would never say to their face. We can be really rude and harsh. Um, at least I know for me in my past, I, I could be. In fact, I don't, I really, I don't even use it except for church stuff. Um, just because I don't want to be taken out of context. And it's just very easy sometimes. And I think we see that even with Paul. They, they don't, he's not using, a, a, obviously, a text message or Facebook. What he's doing, he's writing a message here. And what is he saying? I desire to be there to give this message to you. Because when you sit down in a room with someone, you see their face, you see their care, you see that he really does care for me. He's just struggling. He's confused. He's hurt by what's gone on. But they could also see the care when he goes back and in verse 19 and you see his tone shift and you see him reference him as my dear children. The way he starts so many other epistles and letters he writes is my dear children or something similar to that. And you see this, that Paul cares for them deeply. And he says, I desire to be there with you and it, it give you this message to your face, but he can at the moment. But our reactions change when we encounter people face to face. And that's kind of what Paul's desiring trying to clarify, like, I'm not wanting to be overly harsh, but I'm wanting to sit down with you, and I'm confused about what's going on, and I'm hurt that you're being led astray. And so he sends this letter to them, asking them some of these questions and pointing out some of these things. And so for us today, what are some of the applications we can see in some of these verses? The first thing that came to my mind is, 
do you want to be ensnared again by the former things you struggle with? Would any of us want to go back to slavery that we were once freed from? There was a movie, it came out a few years ago, I believe it won Best Picture at the Oscars. It was called 12 Years a Slave. And if you saw the movie, it was about a, a freed slave, or he, I, I believe, excuse me, he was not a slave. He was a free man, an African-American who was a free man who was living up north. And then he came down south uh, with basically a companion, someone he worked for, and he was abducted and taken into a life of slavery. And for 12 years, he served as a slave, and his treatment, as you can imagine, was not kind. Well, finally, there's a man who helps him get a letter out and get a letter to someone who knew him. They come and they are able to get him free. And when you see that escape from slavery to freedom, you can see there's no desire to go back. There's no like, oh, I'm leaving behind this life and I want to return to it. No, it's no, there's freedom here and there's a running towards that freedom and the escape from the chains that were placed on him. There was no turning back. And sometimes it's easy we forget that initial relief that came from the freedom of condemnation that the law brought upon us. We forget that we're free from the penalty of that. Why would we ever turn back to it? So whatever that thing is that's pulling you away from your faith and your relationship with Jesus, I would encourage us not to turn back. I think of David when he sinned with Bathsheba and we read his prayer of repentance in Psalm 51. And what does he say? Restore to me the joy of my salvation. He had turned his back on the Lord at that season. And you see this loss of joy and this heartbreak in his life. I don't know if any of you remember the hymn, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus. It it became very well known known at Billy Graham Crusades. They would play it at the end of uh, his message when they would do an altar call. And at the end of each stanza, it, it just says this, no turning back, no turning back. And we see that that's Paul's encouragement here is don't turn back. Don't turn back to the life you used to live. Don't turn back to those little G things, those little gods in your life that ensnared you and brought you into slavery. For the people Paul's writing this to, it was the struggle to return to the chains of the law. For us, it may be something else. That was what it was for them. And and, and here's the scary reality, and this is where we got to examine ourselves, I think, culturally a little more. For many of us, we would look at that and be okay with that. At least we're not returning to whatever heinous act it was. At least they're not going back to this extreme. But they're still turning their back on what God wants for them. And ultimately, this is going to lead to the disaster of an eternal variety. And I think the real question we as Christians in our culture in particular need to ask ourselves is, is, have I become like these Judaizers trying to get people to pursue morality instead of pursuing a faith-based relationship with Christ? Because it's easy sometimes for us to look at people and say, I want them to be better people. But to what end? That a nicer group of people is separated from God and hell for eternity? That's all we do if we, if we preach moralism and we don't preach faith-based salvation through God's grace is a nicer group of people end up separated from him. It cannot be a moralistic pursuit of salvation. But it's easy for us culturally to say, like, I just wish people would do this better. I wish they would act better. we got to understand we live in a sinful culture. And if people are separated from God and we're sinful by nature and by choice, why do we expect them to follow a moral code or follow God? They don't have any faith. They don't have anything they acknowledge in their life as God. And sometimes all we desire is, is like these Judaizers. Well, I just want them to act better instead of I just need them. They need to know about Jesus. We cannot worry about actions without the relationship with Christ. So we've got to really guard ourselves that we don't become like these Judaizers. 
because it's very easy to do. And so we got to be cautious in that. The second thing I want to ask a question is, have you reversed your role? Paul at one time said he was being the best Jew he could be. He was fulfilling the checklist of law, of laws. And he warns us that that will never be good enough. He needed the role reversal in his life. He needed to come to faith in Christ. And he said in Philippians 3, 9, the one I said to underline, it said, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. And so the question is, have we reversed our role from saying I'm pursuing it on my own? I'm trying to pursue this moralistic code for salvation? And have we reversed our role like Paul and said, I can never fulfill that code for salvation. I can never fulfill enough laws to become saved. Have we admitted we're a sinner in need of a savior? Have we believed that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave? And have we chose to place our faith in him alone for salvation? Not ourselves, not our works, not any of these things we could do, but solely in Christ. Have you reversed your role and realized we're not good enough? And the last question, are you falling for another gospel? What's leading you away from the true gospel? Is it a moralistic code that you feel you have to follow to be good enough? Is it the emotion of some other pursuit? Are you allowing someone to pull you away because of their emotion based on something? Their excitement, is that pulling you away from your relationship with God and towards another gospel? Is there something that's leading you away from your relationship with Jesus? And Paul says, don't fall for that. It's fine to be excited. He, he says that. It's fine to be excited for the right reasons. If we're excited because we realize, man, we've been saved because Jesus died on the cross and we believe in him, great, be excited about that. But don't allow excitement on other things to lead you astray. Don't be pulled off just because someone's excited. You know, Paul loved and cared for the people there and did not want to see them led astray. He, he, he obviously, if you read this, there's a deep emotional bond and connection, and he's hurt because they're being led astray. And if we're honest, if we think even today on Father's Day of our perfect Heavenly Father, God loves us and desires that we're not led astray either. So I think it's important for us, let Paul's words to the Galatians be heard today, that, that we don't need to be led astray, and there's nothing that saves us apart from our faith in Christ alone. And you'll hear it repeated and repeated and repeated throughout Galatians. It is our faith in Christ alone is our basis for salvation. It's nothing we can do, and it's nothing you can claim you have done. It's falling before him and saying, I can't do it. I, I'm solely relying on Christ alone for salvation, and that's the place he wants us to be, not the place saying, like, I'm kind of doing this, and I rely on faith, but like the Judaizers, but I also got to fulfill this checklist. No, I rely on faith alone in Christ alone. There is no other checklist. There is no other thing we must do. That's it. The beginning and the end of our salvation is that. And so have you acknowledged that? Have you come to that point of saving faith in Christ alone, not because of anything we've done? Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful that it is not a merit-based system because if we're honest, every one of us in here would admit drastic failure on that part that none of us could ever live up to a code of laws or a code of standards we would all fall drastically short but we're thankful that you intervened through christ and in your grace and you saved us 
And so, Lord, I, I pray that we would, if, we're in, if we have that saving faith-based relationship with you, that we'll be thankful of that. We won't be led astray from that and allow things to pull at us that, that steer us away. Lord, that we won't take this idea of a, of, a, of a moral code and try to place that on our society without first trying to impart to them the, the faith-based relationship with Christ. A moral code is not going to lead people to salvation. It's just going to lead them away from you. And so, Lord, may we be a church that ultimately again and again and again repeats the truth that our salvation comes through faith in Christ alone and not because of our works. Lord, thank you that you broke the chains of the law, that we are no longer condemned or under the punishment of the law if we believe in Jesus, that we can celebrate eternity with you. In Jesus' name, amen.